Any children here, kindergarten to first grade, who'd like to be dismissed to Children's Church are welcome to be dismissed through uh, in the foyer. Children's Church teachers will be there to greet you. For the rest of you, open up your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 12. Deuteronomy chapter 12. If you're using a Bible from the pew or a church Bible, it's on page 184. Deuteronomy chapter 12, page 184. We're studying through the book of Deuteronomy here at Sasha Baptist, just kind of taking a chapter or so a week, and uh, today we come to chapter 12, and let me read the, the first seven verses of Deuteronomy 12. These are the decrees and laws you must be careful to follow in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess as long as you live in the land. Destroy completely all the places on the high mountains and on the hills and under every spreading tree where the nations you are dispossessing worship their gods. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, and burn their Asherah poles in the fire. Cut down the idols of their gods and wipe out their names from those places. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way. But you are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from among all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. To that place you must go. There bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts, what you have vowed to give, and your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. There in the presence of the Lord your God, you and your family shall eat and shall rejoice in everything you have put your hand to because the Lord your God has blessed you. Well, I think we find here in Deuteronomy chapter 12 a rather radical idea, a radical concept. And that idea is this, that God cares about how we worship Him. It's not just that God is concerned that we worship Him, But he also cares about how we go about doing it. That what we find here is is God telling us, in a sense, the way he wants us to worship. So there's sort of a way to worship him and a way not to worship him. And I said, I think that's a radical idea because I think it flies in the face of sort of the conventional wisdom in our society about religion and spirituality. You know, I think the sort of the general idea today about religion and spirituality is that it's very much about personal self-expression. So what is spiritual or how should we worship? Well, it depends. You know, what works for you? That's, That's kind of the response. Whatever works for you is what you should do. And if what works for you is kind of a traditional church setting or a synagogue or something like that, that's fine. And if what works for you is a little more exotic, maybe it's um, kind of a a meditation center where you go on weekends and meditate. I mean, that's great. Or maybe for you it's just puttering around the garden on a warm day. And on a warm day, if that's what you do and that's how you feel spiritual, whatever that means, you know, it's really good for you. And so, so the idea is whatever works and whatever works means, (laughs) as you define it, just do that and it's fine. And and what I'm talking about here is not just freedom of religion. I certainly uh, believe very strongly in freedom of religion. I I mean something sort of a step further than that, which is kind of the affirmation of all religions, the the, the embracing and the acceptance of all spiritual paths as equally 
good and effective for connecting with God. And so that's why I say I think this is a radical idea that we find in Deuteronomy 12 where God is telling his people, you need to not just worship me, but you need to worship me the way I tell you and not other ways, not other approaches and other paths. You know, so you look here in Deuteronomy 12 and, and he starts off by saying, these are the decrees and laws you must be careful to follow in the land the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess as long as you live in the land. Just a kind of a little side note real quick, um, just to set the stage here. Uh, since we're studying through De- Deuteronomy, it might be helpful just to note that Deuteronomy 12 really begins a new section uh, of Deuteronomy. So Deuteronomy, like any kind of literary work, has sort of major chapters or sections to it. The first one of Deuteronomy was chapter 1 through 4, which we studied many months ago. Deuteronomy 1 through 4 is kind of a historical review of all the things God had done for Israel in the past. And then we just finished Deuteronomy chapter 5 through 11, which is pretty much all about the Ten Commandments. Deuteronomy 5, Ten Commandments. Then the rest of Deuteronomy 5 to 11 is is sort of an extended sermon urging the Israelites to keep the Ten Commandments. And then when you come to chapter 12, you're into the next section, which is going to go all the way to chapter 26, which is lots of various laws about all kinds of things in Israel that sort of take the Ten Commandments and then play them out into all the little details of life, you know, how God wants Israel to conduct itself in light of the Ten Commandments. And what is interesting is that these two sections, chapter 5 and chapter 12, both begin with a focus on worship. You know, so the Ten Commandments, how do they start? Well, commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Commandment number two, don't make a graven image. So who we worship and how we worship Him. Then we start this new section, and how does it begin in chapter 12? with a concern for worship, that God cares about how he's worshipped. So, so how is God to be worshipped? Well, first thing Moses tells us is how not to worship God. Verses 2 through 4 is, is the negative. Don't do it this way. He says, destroy, verse 2, destroy completely all the places on the high mountains and on the hills and under every spreading tree where the nations you are dispossessing worship their gods. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, burn their Asherah poles in the fire, cut down the idols of their gods, and wipe out their names from those places. And then the summary, you must not worship the Lord your God in their way. So it's not just don't worship their gods, it's don't worship it their way. God has a way, it's not that way. He cares about how he's worshipped. So, so what is their way? How does God go about um, or what, what was? How did the Canaanites worship their gods? Well, let me just kind of just looking at this text here. Four things that sort of marked the Canaanites' way of worship. Number one, they worshipped many gods. They were polytheists. They had Baal, the god of kind of the chief god of, Can- of the Canaanites. He was the god of fertility and rain and storm and lightning. They had uh, Ashtoreth, who was sort of Baal's woman, and uh, she was the goddess of fertility, and they were sort of an item. And then they worshipped uh, the sun and the moon and the stars. And they, you know, lots of gods, many gods to be worshipped. Uh, and not only many gods, number two, many idols or representations of those gods. We get a list here in verse 3. They had sacred stones, kind of like, you know, like Stonehenge or something like that, where they take a big stone and set it up on its end in an unnatural way. So when you look at it, you go, boy, that stone, someone put that there. You know, you'd see a sacred stone, and these sacred stones marked... The, the place of the deity or, or, or the sacred place. They also had um, altars, of course, uh, verse 3. 
They had Asherah poles. These are the poles to the goddess Asherah. We don't have any today from archaeology because, well, they were made of wood and they rotted away. But, but archaeologists have found in some of these temples and high places kind of holes in the ground where the posts were stuck. And it, so you have these different poles. There were also idols, of course, actual physical representations of the gods. So they had many gods, many idols. They had many places of worship. Look at verse 2. They worshipped where? On the high mountains, on the hills, under every spreading tree. They worshipped their gods everywhere. Now, you got to understand a little bit about how ancient kind of uh, pagan religion worked. The, the, not only were there lots of gods, but the gods were very localized. They, they lived in specific places. You know, it would be like, that, see that hill over there? That's the hill of, of that god. And this god is the god of this river. And that valley over there has its own particular god. Uh, in fact, not only did the, did the Canaanites worship Baal, but Baal wasn't sort of a generalized god way up there somewhere, but there were specific Baals of specific areas. So that's the Baal of that area. That's the Baal of Peor. There's a Baal who's this one. And so every, every god had his own little place and his own little spot and his own little rituals and his own priests, and you had to know how to work the god in his particular place to make him happy. And, and other gods were, you know, it made them happy with, in different rituals and in different ways. Um, high places, mountains, hills were often seen as the places of the gods. You know, think about Greek mythology. Probably maybe more familiar with that. Where did the gods live? Mount Olympus. Not just up there somewhere, but on that specific mountain, right there at the top. That's where they are, up on that spot. Not over here, they're up there. So, so you had a very localized, specific place. Every bale had his little franchise <laughs> out in the, in the area. So there were many gods many statues, many places. And then the fourth one here is there were many, many evils committed. That part of pagan religion and at least the Canaanites were facing was just the, the immorality of it. You know, look down at the very end of the chapter where Moses gets back to this theme of not imitating the Canaanite way of worship. You look down at verse um, 29, halfway through that verse, he says, when you have driven them out and settled in their land, and after they have been destroyed before you, be careful not to be ensnared. How? By inquiring about their gods, saying, how do these nations serve their gods? We will do the same. Then you get this command again. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way. Because in worshiping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. You know, it, it was not just many gods, many idols, many places, but many evils. We, we know from history and from archaeology that the, the Canaanite worship was very, you know, just for back to a little word, sexually warped. It, it was very much about prostitution. That, you know, prostitution was a part of the worship. It was a fertility religion. And so you had to enact... You know, the fertility of the gods with prostitutes. They had male prostitutes, female prostitutes, whatever your preference is. Just whatever you want to do. Not only that, they, ch- they practiced human sacrifice. They practiced burning ch- their children in the fire in order to appease the local gods. So it was vile. It, it was, there were many evils committed as part of this religion. God says, I don't want you to worship me that way. That's not how you're going to do it. As I was thinking about the Canaanite way of worship... 
I, I, I just couldn't help but draw comparisons to you know, the spiritual climate, the spiritual tone of our culture in which we live, where, where the, you know, the, the idea really is, look, do what works for you. You know, who's your higher power? Whatever your higher power is, whatever that is, if that works, fine. You know, whatever's helpful for you. Wherever you want to do whatever it is you want to do. You know, however you want to frame it. And and again, I'm, I'm talking about more than just freedom of religion, which I totally support. I'm talking about an affirmation and embracing of all paths as equally effective in connecting one with God. And so... You know, we have this mentality, I think, in our culture. As I try to say, is our culture more Canaanite or more Israelite? I think it's way more Canaanite today because it's let everyone do what's right in his or her own eyes. I mean, we don't worship actual physical statues, but we're very visual. We're very much focused on things and possessions. I mean, it's a very earthy, visual, material kind of culture in which we live. You might say, well, we're not totally like the Canaanites. I mean, we don't, we don't kill our children in the fire you know, and burn them to their gods like, like they did. Well, what about the, the 45 million Americans who've been killed in the womb? Dwarfs the Canaanites. Like, really? And, and why do we do it? Personal convenience. The gods of personal convenience, which is the god of our culture. I really don't think we're that far off. God says, don't worship me that way. I care about how you worship me. Don't do it that way. God says, this is what you're going to do instead. Verse 5. But you are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from among all the tribes to put His name there for His dwelling. To that place you must go. There bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts, what you vowed to give in your freewill offerings and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. There, in the presence of the Lord your God, you and your family shall eat and shall rejoice in everything that you've put your hand to because the Lord your God has blessed you. So we have this strange concept of, of the people of Israel having one place to worship. Just one place. God's like, I'm going to pick a place tell you where it is, and that's where you're going to go. As we'll learn later on in Deuteronomy, there were certain pilgrim festivals where every year all the Israelites, three times a year, Passover was one of them, they all had to travel to the one place where Israel could offer its sacrifices. You know, how, how inconvenient is that? <laughs> you know, it's like, really? We, we have to go where? To Jerusalem? I live way up here in Galilee. i got to go to Jerusalem to bring my offerings? Why couldn't we just have like a little, you know, kind of local uh, temple franchise? You know, maybe there could be like a little outlet here. I mean, you, you got the big store, then you got the little smaller stores that serve the same purpose. We have to travel all the way to Jerusalem. How bizarre was this? You know, the, the Canaanites—they had gods in their houses. You get up every morning, you know, you, you feed the dog, you, you know, you make breakfast, you, you worship the little god that's on the little shelf right in your kitchen. It was great. It was so convenient. If you had a bigger thing to sacrifice, you go across the street to the high place. But this is all the Israelites coming together in one place to worship their one God. I just imagine the Canaanites and other, other peoples around Israel just scratching their heads like, who has ever heard of this? This is weird. Not only that, 
but they only worship one God. What do you mean one God? Like one God who apparently knows everything? Like, Don't you need a local God who specializes in each area? Just one generalist God, not lots of specialists? That's bizarre. And, and this God who, uh, who doesn't have an image or an idol? What a strange way to worship the Israelites had. They had think about it. They had a temple, a tabernacle, and eventually a temple. And inside the temple, they had no statue of their God. Like, who has ever heard of this? It's like, hey, what you got in that temple? Mm, nothing. What do you mean, nothing? What's in your temple? There's nothing. Well, there's a box. Oh, is that box your God? No, that box just holds the laws of our God. So who's your God? What's his statue look like? We don't have one. You've got a temple with no God? Where's your God? Well, he, he's not a statue. He's not an image. This would have seemed bizarro to the people. And not only that, but all the ethical laws. I mean, think about it. We're studying Deuteronomy. Think about the Ten Commandments. All the commandments about how we're supposed to love each other and care for each other. All the commandments about justice and mercy and compassion. So the worship of, of, of the God of the Bible led one to, to love. In, in other words, if I'm worshiping this God, but I'm not loving you as my neighbor, then my worship of God is completely invalidated. So the worship of the Bible is, is very much an ethical, moral kind of worship. Loving God and loving neighbor are instructively linked. So I have to do both if I'm going to be consistent. Um, so so you, you see here, it's just a very different kind of worship, a very peculiar kind of worship that would have seemed very strange to the Canaanites. And it's something I think we just have to accept, that if we're going to worship the God of the Bible, we are going to seem peculiar. It will seem different than your culture in some way or another. I don't care what culture you're in. I don't care if it's the Canaanite culture of the... Second millennium BC. I don't care if it's modern American culture. It doesn't matter if it's a culture on the other side of the world that's very different than Western culture. Any human culture that a person inhabits, if we will follow Jesus and if we will live according to His Word, you will quickly find yourself in a peculiar relationship to that culture. We won't fit, no matter what it is, because we're following the Lord and the cultures of the world have turned against Him. So we don't worship God their ways. And of course, you know, I think that really gets to the nub of it, that it's their ways versus God's ways. And I think that's the kind of the theme that you find here in chapter 12. If I had to sort of put my finger on a theme, it, it's this emphasis on God determining how He's worshipped and where He's worshipped. You know, again, look back at uh, verse 5. But you are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose. So God is going to choose a place. They're not going to pick the one place of worship by voting or by some sort of algorithm where they figure out the most central location for all the tribes. God's going to tell them where it's going to be. To that place you must go. Verse 8. You are not to do as we do here today, everyone as he sees fit. You see that? It's not just do what, do what you want. It's going to be do where God wants us to do and how He wants us to do it. Verse 11. Then to the place the Lord your God will choose. Verse 18. Instead, you are to eat them in the presence of the Lord your God at the place the Lord your God will choose. And so it's God choosing where He is to be worshipped and how He is to be worshipped. And in so doing, this, I think this gets to the whole nub of the issue. Why is it that God cares about the way He's worshipped? Because 
He's God. Which means He's the Lord and we serve Him. You know, when we say, I will worship God or my higher power, but I'll do it in a way that works for me that I'm figuring out for myself, we have de facto stopped worshiping because we're, stopped, we're not treating God as God. In other words, the whole point of treating God as God is saying, if you're God, therefore, you're in charge and I follow. You're the Lord and I'm your worshiper. And so you're telling me what to do. I'm not telling you what to do. It fits into my life. That's the whole nature of it. The very essence of worship, the, the, the fundamental kind of impulse of worship is to ascribe to God the worth of being the king and of being the Lord. Um, you, you know, we can have a worship service here together Sunday morning, and it can be a powerful time together. We can sing songs that are very moving. We, we can Tears can run down our face. I, I cry on Sunday mornings somewhat regularly as, as different songs touch me in different ways. You know, I could use an illustration or tell a story that might really impact you and you could feel something. And we could go out of the worship service saying, that was powerful today. I, I really, whew, I was really affected by that. I felt things. And we could do that. And we could all feel things and go forth without having actually ever worshipped God. You know, emotions are not equivalent to true worship. True worship can produce emotions, but sometimes it doesn't. True worship can produce an effect. In, in some ways it does, but, but not necessarily. If, I, if I'm not in the worship service saying, I surrender myself to you, your will be done, not mine, then I haven't actually worshipped. I haven't actually ascribed to God the worth of being the King of Kings and surrendered myself to Him. We have to be so careful in a culture that, that is very much about our emotions and the inner life, a culture that very much emphasizes aesthetics and aesthetic effects upon us, not to confuse those things with truly telling God, you're the king and like Jesus, not my will but yours be done. That's the act of worship that God's looking for. And that may then come with emotions. That may come with effect. Fine. But let it come from a place of surrendering oneself to the Lord with all of our hearts and saying, He is the Lord. He is the King. Here's my life. Take it and let it be for whatever you would do with it, God. Because you alone are God. So what does this look like for us today? We're obviously not living in the land of Israel. We obviously are not under the Old Covenant. We are under the New Covenant in Christ. Uh, We're not the people of Israel living in this place. So, so how do, what do we do with a passage like this? Um, you know, there's not a tabernacle today. The Old Testament tabernacle has no longer exists. The Old Testament temple that replaced the tabernacle no longer exists. There's not actually a central place of, place of worship that we all go to. So what, what are we supposed to do with this text? What, whatever happened to all this anyway? Do we just kind of say, well, that's interesting and, and move on? Well, actually, God hasn't lost track of the temple and the tabernacle. It's just not what it used to be. It's actually something greater than it used to be. It's actually something that's a fulfillment of what it used to be. I'd like to show it to you. Look at the Gospel of John, chapter 4, as we think about what this looks like in the New Covenant. It's on page 1053 in the Pew Bible. John, I'm sorry, John chapter 2. John chapter 2, page 1053. This is the story of Jesus in the Gospel of John. And here's Jesus. It's the Passover, one of the three 
pilgrim feasts where all the Jews had to go to one place to worship the one God. And so Jesus has, like a good faithful Jew, gone to Jerusalem on the Passover and to the temple. The one place where God has placed His name. And it says in John chapter 2, verse 13, When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts He found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So He made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, He said, Get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? I said, ooh, that, that's an exciting church service that Sunday. Just uh, Jesus knocking everything over and causing a ruckus. His disciples, verse uh, 17, remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all these things? Obviously, Jesus, you think you can just come over in here and do what you want. You obviously think you're entitled So how about you do a miracle to show us that you actually have authority from God to come in here and knock over stuff in the temple? Who do you think you are? So Jesus tells them the miracle. Verse 19, Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. Now they're like, oh dear. (laughs) We're dealing with a live one. Verse 20, the Jews replied, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, right, three days in the tomb, after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said, and then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. So Jesus says, raise this, destroy this temple, I'll raise it in three days. You want a miracle? I'll do it. Kill this temple, destroy it, ruin it. Three days later, I'll raise it back up. And of course, he was talking about the temple of his body, not the the building he was in. Now, now do you hear what's going on in this text? There's something really theologically enormous. There's a kind of theological uh, sort of tectonic shift that's taking place from the Old Testament to the New Testament here. Jesus is not just making an analogy. He's not just doing a wordplay or a double entendre. He's not just saying, you know, I'm kind of like a temple, sort of like this temple. He wasn't just doing a play on words. What he was really saying was, look, I am the temple. I've become the temple. In other words, this building that you guys love, and I've been coming to since I was a kid too, this building was foreshadowing something. This building was was predicting something, and that something is now here, and it's me. Just like you know the sacrifices in the temple. They'd sacrifice all these animals. And we know now that all those sacrifices were a foreshadowing or, or a, a, a prediction of the coming of Jesus who would give His life for us on the cross. And so when Jesus came, He fulfilled the whole purpose of what those sacrifices were intended to teach. In the same way, Jesus is really saying, look, I am the temple. This building, this was just kind of like a parable. This building is a big parable that's been around for thousands of years. And now I am the interpretation of the parable. And I am here now. Because what's a temple? It's the place where God dwells on earth among His people. And now God has come down to dwell on earth among His people. Not symbolized by a building, but literally in the person of Jesus. He's the God-man. He's standing there. He's like, 
God is with you. I am Emmanuel, God with us. God is with you. I am the temple. And here's a miracle. Kill this temple. It will be up in three days. Go ahead. Try me. And they did, and he did. And so he is the temple. So we still are called to a central place of worship. We are still called to one location. God still has this kind of weird, narrow view of one way. Except now the place has become a person. Now the place has found its fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. And so you have this emphasis on Jesus as the tabernacle. It's interesting, in John chapter 1, it says the Word became flesh, Jesus, the Son of God became flesh, and made His dwelling among us. That Greek word, made His dwelling, means made a tent, made a tabernacle. He's the tabernacle. He's among us, dwelling with us. God is with us in Christ. And, and that's why then Jesus becomes the way. So, so if we want to approach God now, God cares about how we approach Him, and that how is now a person, and His name is Jesus Christ. So that's why you have, like in John 14, Jesus saying this really politically incorrect thing where He says, uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through Me. You know, why? By, by what authority can you say that? How could Jesus say He's the only way to God? How could He say that? By what authority do you have to say that, Jesus? Knock down this temple, I'll raise it in three days. He's the only philosopher, teacher, guy who's ever risen from the dead in three days. He's the only guy who died for my sins and rose again in three days. It's by that authority that he can claim to be the way to God. So, the command is still out there for all of us to come to God. But we don't go to a building, we go to the Son of God, Jesus Christ. We put our faith in Him. And when we do, when we come to God through faith in Jesus, something amazing happens. The temple starts to grow. And this is where we're going to get into some metaphors here that just fall apart. This is going to be a train wreck of metaphors, so just prepare yourself. It's a growing temple. What? You build a temple. You don't grow a temple. I know. This is the weirdest temple you ever heard of. But everything's changed now that Jesus has come. Jesus is the temple, and now the temple is growing as we are included in it. One more text, and and then we'll finish. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. It's on page 1157 in the Pew Bible. Ephesians chapter 2, page 1157. And verse 19. Here's the Apostle Paul writing to Gentiles. And he's telling them how great it is now that they've come to Jesus. The Gentiles have been made fellow citizens of God's household, which is great news. I'm I'm assuming probably the vast majority of us here are Gentiles. I come from Gentile roots. My ancestors were idol-worshipping German tribesmen and Druids, you know. So I, I come from pagan Gentile roots like many of us here. And yet somehow through Jesus, I've become part of the true people of God. It's amazing that God would have me in. And so he says here in verse 19, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but now fellow citizens of God's people and members of God's household. Now here comes the crazy temple metaphors. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone, in him the whole building 
is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in Him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. There's the living temple that God is building out of people. So the cornerstone is Jesus. He's the corner. It's because of what He did. You know, God says, See, I will lay a, corn, a precious cornerstone in Zion. Because Jesus gave up His life, there is a cornerstone for the new the new people that God is building. And then the other foundation are the apostles and prophets. What do apostles and prophets have in common? They all authoritatively speak the word of God. So the foundation of the temple is Jesus and his word. This is how we approach God. If you're going to come to God, you've got to come to the one place. It's Christ and what, what his apostles and prophets have taught us. And then on that starts building this human, this, this human temple. So when I come to faith in Jesus, I'm not just coming to be personally saved by Jesus, but I'm then being brought into this new living temple of people. You know, this is where the, the, the analogies and the metaphors, I just think, get wacky. You know, I was trying to envision this. Is this like a bunch of cheerleaders making a huge pyramid? I'm trying to imagine a, imagine a human pyramid of some sort. Then I just said, oh, forget it. I'll just, you know, read what it says here. Um, we're a holy temple. We are the temple. And, and how do we experience that? The answer we find is in local congregations. So we worship God by coming to Jesus through His Word and then committing ourselves to a local congregation. And so local churches are like little outcroppings or manifestations of this, this global temple that God is building with His people. That's why being in a local church is so important because it's how we experience being connected to other believers arm in arm, shoulder to shoulder, to be this living body. We experience that not by believing in Jesus and staying home and watching Charles Stanley by yourself or some other TV preacher who are wonderful preachers. But it's like, you've got to be with other Christians in a body all connected together. You know? And that's how, we, that's how we worship is in this body that God is building. What a wonderful thing. I not only got a Savior, but I got a family. I didn't even know I had. And now I'm part of this family. It's, it's incredible. And then one last thought. And then I really will close. Because this is a living temple, it's mobile. It actually moves. <laughs> it's so cool. You don't have to go to it. It'll come to you. It, it's, it moves. Think about Jesus. What did Jesus do when he came on earth? He wore through pairs of sandals, you know, because he walked everywhere. He was always walking around for three and a half years, walking every place. The guy must have been in great shape. Three and a half years of constant walking and teaching all day. You know, he, he, here's what Jesus didn't do when he came. He didn't go to the temple, set up like one of those booths at a trade show with a bunch of pamphlets, and put on like a name tag, Hi, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah. And, uh, hey, I'm the Messiah. How you doing? How you doing? Here's a pamphlet. Hey, come on, check this out, you know. Love, love to be your Messiah. He didn't do that. It wasn't like, well, if you want to meet the Messiah, you've got to go to Jerusalem to the temple. He was like, he went, Everywhere. He's in Cana, he's down in Judea, he's in Samaria, he was all over the place. I mean, there's a whole Bible, the whole gospel is just this travelogue of Jesus zipping everywhere to every little village, every little hamlet, every big city, out in the wilderness, in Jerusalem, back into the wilderness. Because the temple was finding people. The, the temple was, was looking for the people who thought they were just too far from God and they couldn't even have a chance. And he went and found, you know, the prostitute and the tax collector who just were like, I am so far gone, forget it. There's no chance for me. And Jesus went and found them 
They said, hey, the temple's here. Come worship. Let's go. And he'd grab them and he'd pull them in to the life. He went for the lost sheep of Israel. Amazing. And then when Jesus died and rose again, paid for our sins so that we could come into the temple and washed us clean to make us acceptable before God. He then took his 12 disciples right before he went to heaven. He said, all right, now you guys, you know what I did in Israel? You guys watched me for three years? I want you to do that, except I want you to go to planet Earth. The whole Earth, go. All nations, go. And so his disciples spread out, and since then, since that time, the, the, the message of Jesus has just gone viral on planet Earth. It's gone totally viral. It came to Hingham. It came to Hingham. New England has received the gospel. It's amazing. Like, how did that happen? Because as we come to Christ, we're forgiven. We meet the true God in Jesus. We're then brought into this family. We, we suddenly belong, so we're saved. We belong. I now belong to a family. And then we're sent. And, and so as soon as you become a Christian, you're suddenly on a mission to, to wherever it is that, that God sends you in your life. And that's how the gospel has spread, as this global, mobile, living temple founded on Jesus and his word has gone out in search of the lost sheep of the world. So it's a wonderful story. The gospel of Jesus is incredibly exclusive. Only Christ is the way. There's no other way. And it's incredibly inclusive. Everybody can come. Everybody can come. Let's pray.